It's Locked On NBA. Ben Golliver of the Washington Post joins me to talk about Team USA. Are they still the favorite? Who are the big dogs that are playing great? Plus, Greg Popovich putting his stamp on the team. We move into the NBA talking about players making the jump year two to year three. And look at the Kings and the Blazers. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked On NBA. You are locked on the NBA. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA with Ben Golliver today. Ben has been covering Team USA so far. And uh, as they get ready for their World Cup action that starts at the end of the month, uh, Ben obviously with the Washington Post and our Locked On NBA expert at times as well. Ben, what's that like? I've never covered a Team USA. Is it similar to what? Is it similar to anything you've covered before? Is it more relaxed? Is it what's it like? Um, I love covering USA basketball. I'll tell you, during some of those Olympic years when you've got like Kobe in one corner, LeBron in the other corner, Kevin Durant behind you, I mean, it's almost like too much for a, a basketball fan's brain to handle. Like you almost just feel like your your head is going to explode. And um, you know, there's been some incredible situations, I think, in past years where guys just want to go one-on-one-on-one, you know, for 20 or 30 minutes after the practice is over. So you could see Kevin Durant going against Paul George, going against James Harden. And it's almost like, you know, for guys like me who put together top 100 lists or we're always trying to, you know, rank or, or vote for players, you know, all NBA and that kind of thing, to watch it all play out in front of you in one gym is pretty spectacular. Now, this year it's a little bit different. I think obviously the, uh, the, the main story coming into the camp was all the players who, who withdrew who didn't want to play. I think the main reason behind that is just the scheduling issue. FIBA changed the World Cup tournament, so rather than having it in 2018, which would have been its sort of natural time in its previous cycle, they bumped it back a year to 2019 so that it wouldn't conflict uh, with the Soccer World Cup. And unfortunately, I think that forced a lot of guys to make a choice. Hey, do I want to play this summer in the World Cup, or do I want to play next summer at the Tokyo Olympics? And is it really possible or feasible to do both? And I think a lot of people just concluded, hey, I I don't want to be in the mix you know, in back-to-back summers like that. Uh, so unfortunately, I think this year it's a little bit, uh, you know, less uh, eye popping uh, than maybe uh, the usual USA basketball experience. Uh, I think some of the biggest names and there's still all stars here, whether it's Kyle Lowry, Kemba Walker, uh, Chris Middleton. And there's a pretty good crop of rising stars like Darren Fox, Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum uh, and so on. So there's plenty of stories, uh, just not the same, you know, superstar power. And I think, you know, one of the big takeaways from the first couple of days of camp is just, you know, Greg Popovich, you know, it's the first time he's been the head coach of USA basketball. He's really tried to put his stamp on this program. Uh, he, he's almost been the biggest personality in the entire gym. All right, so what is the Popovich stamp? Well, I think uh, in, in previous years, Coach K was so buttoned up. You know, I, I mean, he obviously comes from a military background, being an Army guy, and they, they definitely, um, you know, had that kind of a, a mentality. He, he didn't want to tip his hand too much. Other than maybe, you know, praising LeBron James and a few other players, uh, he was always very tight-lipped. He rarely wanted to give breakdowns on, uh, you know, who stood out during scrimmages or you know, who might make the team. I mean, he wasn't uh, real big on the, uh, the rumors or the speculation stuff. I mean, it was just very by the book. And I think with Popovich, we're already seeing a lot, a lot of personality. Uh, you know, the first day out, he's kind of jumping around the gym, kind of trying to set a positive tone, kind of joking with reporters. Uh, then, you know, day two, he wound up getting pretty serious and talking about some of the uh, the mass shootings and some of the political uh, situations going around the country right now. 
Uh, and then today, you know, he started talking about how he's trying to put his own stamp on USA basketball style by really preaching ball movement and man movement and just trying to, you know, make sure uh, guys who are stars on their own teams in the NBA are coming together and playing maybe a more Spursy style where they're going to be able to uh, use their collective talent uh, to knock off, whether it's Serbia or Spain or some of these other top challengers in the tournament. So uh, we've got a little bit of everything from Popovich, uh, but certainly he contrasts with, uh, you know, Coach K because I think he's he's trying to be, uh, you know, the face of the program. I, I do think he realizes that maybe the usual buzz around this group uh, just isn't there this year because so many guys aren't playing. So Pop's known for moving the guy one step this way or having an angle set in a certain fashion or or the pick angle on it. You know, those little, little details that are really what kind of is Spursian. Do you think he goes to that level with this type of team? Well, his his main uh, priority so far has been chemistry and camaraderie, and that should be no surprise. I mean, the Spurs won year after year after year because they had the same core group, right? It's like when we see Golden State go out there and re-sign Clay Thompson and Draymond Green this summer – didn't your mind immediately go and think, oh, well, now they've kept together their kind of core trio, just like uh, the San Antonio Spurs did with Tim Duggan and, and Manu Ginobili and, and Tony Parker. And I think, you know, Popovich in this World Cup is nervous that teams like Serbia or Spain, uh, you know, or even Australia have had core groups of guys who have really played together in international tournaments in the past, and they're going to have a big continuity advantage over the United States. And so I think he's really trying to build up the chemistry uh, before he gets into too much, uh, you know, uh, deep X's and O's. And let's be honest, I mean, he's kind of throwing this team together. You've got everybody from P.J. Tucker, you know, who's like a 34-year-old vet, uh, down to guys who are 20- and 21-year-old point guards who are trying to make the team. So it's a wide range of players, uh, not a lot of, you know, sets of teammates. And so I think to him, that's been the, the top priority, is, is making sure that um, they have a certain level of chemistry where it's not just a collection of individuals because I think that's how this team could get beat, right? Uh, if they go out there and it's too much freelancing, if it's too much ball pounding, and uh, and even with their playing against zone, if it's just too much settling for quick three-pointers, I think that's one way a, a team with USA's depth of NBA talent uh, could find itself upset in a FIBA tournament. All right, let's get to some of the fun stuff. Like, I keep hearing about De'Aaron Fox and Donovan Mitchell exploding on the scene. Is there actually any truth? Is somebody Are people playing better, or is there, is there a buzz around certain players? Uh, I think there's absolutely buzz around both those guys. You know, I'm going to make a, a couple comparisons for you. You know, this is USA basketball-related. I think with De'Aaron Fox, the buzz around him, it really reminds me of a young Kyrie. I mean, everybody's seen that video where he's sort of slaloming through full court you know, driving between his legs and doing spin moves against the, the older USA vets from probably five or six years ago. That's kind of what it feels like with Fox. I mean, everybody you talk to is just like, man, we knew he was fast, but he's even faster than we realized. And he's just been great at putting pressure uh, on his man and, uh, you know, essentially just getting into the paint kind of at will. Uh, Popovich has also praised his shot making. I know that that's sort of the big X factor to me for Sacramento season is if he can continue to make, you know, 37% of his three-pointers, and scale up the volume there, he becomes a very, very difficult player to guard. And I think he's going to be a really nice fit for what Luke Walton wants to do, which is get up and down and play with pace. And I think he was hoping to do that maybe more with the Lakers than he was actually able to do in these last couple of seasons. To me, that's just kind of like a perfect marriage between coach and player. Uh, Now, John Donovan Mitchell today during the scrimmages, now we don't get to see the whole practice, but today we probably got to see about 30 minutes of gameplay and uh, the number one highlight of the whole day, there was a, a two-on-one fast break. Mitchell passes to Walker, uh, Kemba Walker, 
who sets him up with an alley-oop, and Mitchell went way up to get it. I mean, his head's almost rim level, uh, throws it down. The whole gym was kind of ooing and aahing. And then there was another play where you know, he came from the weak side on defense, uh, deflected a, a lob pass, you know, came down the other direction, uh, you know, in transition, got himself into the corner and, and hit a, you know, a stop-and-pop three-pointer from the corner, too. So it was just a nice end-to-end play where you know, his teammates are cheering for him. Uh, the coaching staff is nodding its approval. And a lot of the scouts and, and other coaches and, and NBA personnel from around the league are, are kind of murmuring and saying, oh, boy, you know, that, that, that guy is something special. And uh, maybe the comparison for him there would be a, you know, a young Dwayne Wade, a guy who really settled in with USA basketball, had an upbeat, positive personality, became sort of a, a central leader of that group. And I do think that's one thing that uh, you know, this FIBA World Cup team needs to establish. It's an alpha score on the court. You know, who's going to be? Uh, stepping forward in, in key late game moments. And then also who's going to be sort of the biggest personality in the room, who's going to be one of these guys who can, uh, you know, unite everybody and pull them together. And even though both Fox and, and Mitchell uh, are on the younger side of this group, I, I definitely think they've got both the talent uh, and the moxie, you know, the, the kind of a charisma uh, that just kind of pops from the, from the guys who are here present uh, and playing in this group. So to me, I think they're both going to get a lot of time over in China. I think they're both going to make a big impact. He's Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. Make sure you sign up for his newsletter. Go to WashingtonPost.com. Get his NBA newsletter sent to your email box once a week. It's absolutely fantastic and certainly worth doing if you want to know what's going on in the NBA. If you're a football fan, by the way, the new Locked On NFL is on fire. Last week, it was one of the most listened to NFL shows. Expert analysis of former NFL scout Matt Williamson, hosted by Brian Peacock. Locked On NFL is your daily national podcast on all things NFL with Matt's unique takes on the game. So follow Locked On NFL on your favorite podcast provider. Ben Golliver answers a question of whether this is good for players and where this whether this is what started Team USA, actually started all this team building and addresses just a pet peeve of mine as we continue on Locked On NBA. As you watch all of this take place, Ben, do you think this is where all the buddying up started and where it came from as we go back to think dream team and professional teams and putting these guys together? Or do you think it goes back to AAU? Which what, What's the answer to that? Yeah, I'm not sure it's one or the other. I think it's a little bit of both. I think that USA Basketball, though, was really smart to realize and understand the power that uh, this kind of a bonding experience could have for players. I mean, let's be honest. They had to go out there and recruit LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and all those guys who wound up teaming up in the first place. And as we're seeing this summer, that's not always a guarantee. You can't just tell people, hey, go win a gold medal, and they automatically want to sign up for that. So um, I do think, though, anytime you're spending a lot of time and, you know, it's going to be a two- or three-week experience by the time they go to Australia for the exhibitions and then on to uh, China. I mean, these guys are going to spend lots of time together. I think it's natural that bonds and friendships would form. And I also think that when you get a chance to play with guys, it's not an all-star game environment. I mean, these are real games against, you know, some fairly high-level competition. You get to see how your game fits, uh, and you, you maybe get a, a taste of what it could look like if, uh, you know, LeBron and Dwayne Wade you know, team up down in uh, Miami or maybe – Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, you know, wind up teaming up uh, in Golden State these last couple of years. So to me, it's a, a part of the uh, the overall pie. I don't think it's the whole thing, though. I think people uh, like to hype that up maybe more than it's worth. Do you think this is good for these players? Will they be more ready when the season started? Will they be tired by 
February. There's so many different hypotheses, and I feel like there's no truth. There's just hypothesis. What's your thought? Well, personally, I love watching the game, so I'm a little bit of a biased narrator here. I think everybody should do it, and I think that uh, you know USA should continue to set its sights as high as possible in terms of getting the very best talent, especially for next year's Olympics. You know, Jerry Colangelo said he expects to come back in a big time way with uh, you know A-listers uh, at the Tokyo Olympics, and I, I hope that happens. But it's kind of crazy. I was talking to Trey Young yesterday just about what he's doing this summer. And it's like, even being at this camp, that's just like one little sliver of his overall program. I mean, he spent multiple months uh, after their season ended in mid-April down in Atlanta working with their staff. Then he goes to Southern California. He's working with trainers on his skill development constantly. Uh, you know, there was a report last week that he's going to, you know, after USA basketball is over, he's going to then go on and, you know, get some, uh, you know, one-on-one uh, type individual uh, work in with Kobe Bryant. So these guys are playing constantly all summer long. And to me, you might as well be representing your country and you might as well be playing in games that actually matter. I think the FIBA tournament, by the way, it's a little bit underrated. I think people overlook it. Um, I think that you know, you've got players like Giannis, Jokic, uh, Rudy Gobert there in Utah uh, for you as well. I mean, these are some pretty high level players who are going to be representing their countries and potentially starting to create cores that are going to be able to grow together, you know, into future uh, competitions, whether it's the Olympics uh, or future World Cups, that's pretty exciting. I mean, I love this idea where we could be, let's say, six or seven years down the road, and you've got you know the top ten players in the NBA who are from six different countries who are potentially all representing their national teams. Uh, you know, whether it's like Ben Simmons or Luka Doncic or uh, you know, in a dream world, Joel Embiid and some of these other international stars. I mean, I think that would be great for basketball and the growth of the game, and I think it would also be very healthy competition for the players themselves. You know, back to Fox and, and Mitchell. This was going to be my pet peeve. Uh, the only – Darian Fox is on fire because he had such a great second year. And I'm reading The Ringer the other day, and they're referring to Donovan as having an underwhelming second season. Like, the season in which guards and wings get better is from year two to year three. The only guys who get better – and this goes for Jason Tatum as well, maybe even Jalen Brown a little bit. The only guys who actually – make a jump from year one to year two is if they have a bad year one. But if you look at young players, if they have a really, really good year one, they don't usually get better in year two. It's in year two to year three that these players all make their biggest jump of the season. And so for De'Aaron Fox and Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum and all these, these, that great draft class that was made turn out to be, you know, other than LeBron's, one of the great draft classes we've ever seen. This is the year where those guys all emerge on the scene. And this to me seems like the pre, excuse me, the perfect precursor to being ready to do that. Well, I would hope so. I mean, we've seen guys use this experience as a springboard before. I mean, the Warriors guys did for sure, where they're going over there and playing in that, uh, uh, the the FIBA World Cup, I think, in 2014, and then they're able to just spring that into an incredible 2015 season. Uh, I think that that really helped guys like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson when they were still trying to you know gain their footing as perennial All Star type guys. They hadn't quite yet done that, and that tournament helps boost them. I, I think that especially in the case of Mitchell, I mean, he's a victim of his own success, right? Like if he doesn't have such a sensational series uh, and put Oklahoma City out of that playoff run. Uh, how does everyone view his second year? To me, it looks totally differently. Even if he had just been good and not great in that series, uh, I, I would still make that same argument. Um, you're mentioning that draft class. There's no question. It's, it's such a fascinating group, very talented throughout the lottery. 
And so many of those guys have actually been directly or indirectly impacted by trades. It's incredible. I mean, you look at Fultz and Tatum were traded for each other. Lonzo Ball has been traded. Josh Jackson has now been traded and may, you know, soon be out of the league. You just go right down the list of all these different guys in that group. And, and a lot of them have either uh, found themselves in situations where they're going to get bigger roles in, in year three because of trades, or they found themselves in, in situations where uh, they're going to be, I guess, more comfortable because of trades that have been made, you know, to kind of accentuate their talent. So uh, they all that group is it's still very young, but they've seen a lot of the NBA uh, and I think the one guy who's almost the exception to that would actually be De'Aaron Fox because uh, he's been settled in there in Sacramento for a couple of years. They've been trying to find the right pieces to, to put around him. You look at their offseason strategy, that there's no question they were trying to spend money to win now and just kind of going for broke to try to get that eighth playoff spot, uh, you know, to try to snap their string of uh, lottery trips that goes back, what, more than 10 years probably. And I think those pieces are starting to add up for the Kings. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, Fox is able to, you know, like leap out from this, uh, you know, uh, this World Cup experience and translate that into, you know, a 41-42 win type season and just barely sneak them into the playoffs. I could see that happening for sure. Well, I, I, they ha- he has to do that. I mean, I, it's interesting. I looked at Sacramento the other day. I almost like all of their players they signed, none of them at the at the dollar figure they signed them at would be the easiest way to look at Sacramento to me. Well, yeah, I always say that Vladi is paying an exchange rate sometimes to get, you know, it's like when you go overseas and you got to pay an extra 30% when you're in Paris or London, you're just like, man, why is everything so expensive? I feel like that's <laughs> kind of what the Kings face, unfortunately, when they're, uh, you know, competing for free agents. And we actually saw it out in the open. I think uh, it was Patrick Beverly who said, you know, point blank, told everybody, look, Sacramento offered me a lot more money. Uh, I took a discount to stay with the Clippers and uh, you know, you wonder sometimes if it had been another team, you know, not Sacramento that had made that same offer, uh, would Beverly have turned down the money? You know, I, I think that's a, a real open question and something we've seen happen kind of time and time again for, for the Kings. Well, and to the point of what we were just talking about, you talked about Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, who people can go back and look at. Year two to year three is obviously the jump. Buddy Heald just did it, right? I mean, Buddy Heald goes, t- jumps to 21 points a game last year. From 13 the year before, I th- if I ha- it, yeah, his rookie year he gets traded. He gets a full year in Sacramento, averages 13 points a game, and jumps to 21 from year two to year three. I mean, this that that Lonzo Ball d- group you talked about, Lonzo Ball, John Collins probably deserves to be mentioned there. De'Aaron Fox, Donovan Mitchell, um, you know who Jason Tatum. Th- that this group in, is about to make that jump in it and. And establish themselves as this is next generation um, of players. There uh, does the USA uh, do they have it with this limited roster? Are they still the favorite? They are. I mean, they're going to be the only team that has twelve NBA caliber players on their roster. So I think depth is going to be a big advantage. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see them sort of play pressure style defense, where you're trying to wear through the other team's best players um, and to capitalize on their level of depth. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to be easy, though. You know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they get really tested. You go back to that 2014 FIBA World Cup team. They went 9-0 and through that tournament, and they won by an average of 33 points a game. And, you know, they had some really, really big-time players on that roster. It's not going to be that easy this time around. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, they're, they're early. I guess the format of the tournament favors them because, you know, you don't get to the knockout round until, you know, towards the end. So you have a little bit of a margin for error during the group stage. And I think they're in a pretty you know, simplistic or easy group. So they're going to have a nice soft launch, I think, into the tournament. 
Um, I think that if everybody had played, though, like if Ben Simmons had played, if all the Canadian guys and Jamal Murray had played, um, I think it would have been a lot more interesting because when you look at the list of players for the United States who passed on it, I mean, it's big-time guys, Harden, Anthony Davis. I mean, the list goes on and on. Damian Lillard. I mean, you know, basically name an all-NBA player, uh, and they decided to stay at home. And, and that really puts, uh, you know, Coach Popovich, to me, in a tough spot because he's still getting his bearings as a coach. Uh, he, you know, they had Coach K. I was actually there at the practice today to offer his own assessment of, of the players and to, you know, maybe pass on some words of wisdom as well. But uh, I do feel a little bit for Greg Popovich because this is probably the weakest overall team that USA Basketball has put together uh, in at least 10 years. Uh, and you can argue that it's the first time uh, USA Basketball will not have the tournament's best player since before Dream Team won, all the way back in you know the early 90s or, or the late 80s. I mean, if you go, you just track right through, I mean, from Michael Jordan and LeBron James and, and Kobe Bryant and all those guys in these various tournaments, uh, you know, a player like Giannis or a player like Jokic, to me, is going to be significantly better individual talent uh, than anybody the USA has to offer. He's Ben Golliver. We'll talk about some of the questions I have around the NBA in our final segment as we continue. If you're a fantasy football player, Vinny Iyer is giving you the fantasy football edge every day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. You can get his entire podcast at Locked On Fantasy Football. Vinny gives you that edge with over 20 years of experience covering fantasy football. Don't listen to the same stuff as everyone else. Then you're just the same as them. So get the edge from Vinny, and you'll be ahead on draft day and all season long. Locked On Fantasy Football on your favorite podcast provider. Since I'm so fortunate to get to talk to you and I've begun to try to figure out what I think of all the teams in the NBA, I get to start. I, I'm going to use you as my sounding board. We actually touched on Sacramento, who I'm I'm still a little befuddled by how they come together. The other one that I'm very confused about, I'm just trying to understand maybe more than anyone else, and they haven't had a lot of pub, Ben, is Portland. I know um, you know them well. What is your feeling of what this Blazer team is this year? Well, it's going to be really, really different. And I think there was so much attention paid, especially to the addition uh, of Hassan Whiteside, but also some of the other moves they made, whether it was uh, swapping out Evan Turner for who I think is actually a better fit for them, Ken Bazemore. But I, I think that lost in all the shuffle was a lot of guys are headed out and a lot of guys who gave them really good minutes and played important roles for them in recent years are all gone. And I think it puts a lot of pressure on some of their younger players to really step up and play big roles. Uh, you know, for example, I, I think the one that I would highlight the most would be Al Farouk Aminu. Now he's far from a perfect player and he actually wound up being a little bit of a liability in certain playoff series, but they don't really have anybody who's equipped to guard, you know, those combo three fours, like the high level perimeter wings that you're going to have to get through in the Western conference. I mean, their defensive options on those players at this point are not great. Uh, they lost not only Aminu, but also Mo Harkless, who you could say are probably their two best uh, wing defenders at that spot. That would make me very, very nervous if I was Terry Stotts. Now, it did create an opportunity for Zach Collins to really step up into a starting role at the four. But he's a much different style player than Aminu. I mean, I think he's going to be more of a you know four five uh, rather than a three four. So that could create some matchup issues for them. Um, but I, he's a very intriguing defensive talent. He plays with energy. He's not afraid to mix it up and, and get physical. Uh, in an ideal world, he'll be able to step out and shoot some corner threes or at least stretch the defense a little bit uh, to create some room for Whiteside. So, uh, you know, you can see how the pieces might come together. Uh, but I just think from a, a playoff standpoint, 
um, they probably took a step back. Because when I look at these teams in the Western Conference, one of the biggest questions I ask is, who's going to guard LeBron? Uh, of course, we always have to ask that question. And then who's going to guard uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George? And to me, both those L.A. teams really hold matchup advantages against the Blazers. As amazing as their backcourt duo is of, of Damian and C.J., I mean, ultimately, you have to have the right kind of help around those guys. And uh, that's what's got me nervous for them. Does anybody in the West answer those questions well? Because Utah doesn't. Houston doesn't. I don't think Denver does. Does anybody answer the questions well on who's going to guard LeBron and who's going to guard Kawhi and Paul George? Well, I think the team that uh, can can guard LeBron the best is the Clippers, for sure. But, yes, I, I think it's going to be the, the central, uh, you know, kind of uh, fulcrum of the conference is, is those guys. I mean, they're the best players. And other than Kawhi, and I'm not sure there's another guy in the conference who's, who's really going to do uh, a passable job on LeBron. I think that's what makes Andre Iguodala's future actually uh, so interesting to track because I think he would be a, a big-time difference maker for either one of the L.A. teams if he was to land on them from a matchup standpoint. I think the Lakers, you would feel so much better about going against the Clippers in a series if you had Iguodala. And if you're the Clippers and you got Iguodala, now that's just an embarrassment of riches. You can put out a almost like a five-wing lineup and, and try to hold down LeBron James that way. So, um, But maybe one of these other Western Conference teams will say, you know what, we need to have somebody uh, to keep up in this arms race here on the perimeter. We have to go out there and get a talent. Uh, and I think, to me, he's sort of the, the best and most proven name that could become available. Well, that's interesting. I actually thought you made the case that Denver, Portland, Utah, Houston actually are the ones that need Iguodala more than anyone else. You you still think a 36-year-old Andre Iguodala can impact a playoff race or playoffs? Uh, for sure. I mean, yeah, he's not going to be impacting your wins-losses during the regular season. But, look, I mean, when uh, things got tight, how much did Golden State need him last year? And when you look at the, the previous uh, finals runs, I mean, he was playing really important minutes and really important possessions uh, against LeBron in those finals. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Now, it's hard to keep him healthy. Can he hold up for a whole playoff run? I mean, there's no doubt that, that those are open questions. But uh, if I was Portland, I'd be feeling a lot better about my chances of getting back to the Western Conference Finals if I had a player like him or, or him himself uh, as compared to, you know, hoping that, you know, Rodney Hood or, or Bazemore uh, or Zach Collins, like that group is going to be able to somehow keep up with some all-NBA level wings. I just don't see that. Here's the last one I have for you today. I, I was a little surprised by this when I found when I looked at this. So if you look at last year's season, there were nine defensive teams that were below 109 points per 100 possessions, according to Cleaning the Glass. Utah was the best uh, by a large margin, by a point, 1.1 points better than anyone else um, in the NBA. Cleaning the Glass uh, takes out some garbage time, so their numbers are a little different. And then Milwaukee was actually, Utah and Milwaukee were considerably better than the rest of the NBA defensively. But if you run through these teams, almost all of these teams, I'm going to give you the nine, except for two or three, have had pretty dramatic changes to who they are. And it makes me wonder who the elite defensive teams in the league are. Everything we're talking about is offense, but somebody's going to be the best defensive. So Utah loses favors. Milwaukee's about the same. Oklahoma City's certainly not the same. Indiana loses Thaddeus Young. They they, they lose Bojan Bogdanovic, who you can decide is good or not good defensively, but they've certainly changed who they are. Brogdon's not an elite athlete. Toronto loses Kawhi. Miami's not the same without Whiteside. Boston loses Al Horford. Orlando is probably still the same, and the Warriors lose Klay Thompson. Like, who are the elite defensive teams in the NBA, or are there any this year? Yeah, the two that jumped to mind for me for sure would be the Clippers and the Sixers. I mean, I think in part because of the moves they made this summer, there's no doubt when you look at 
the Clippers perimeter defense. That's just kind of like a murderer's row. And I really like the idea where, um, you know, when they go small, if they have uh, Montrez Harrell as their five, they can be, you know, they can pressure and turn the ball over. I think, you know, very, very well uh, with the groups. And they can also throw out some crazy lineups where if they want to just, you know, use uh, one of their wings almost as like a de facto ball handler point guard, they can put out four wings on the court at the same time, switch everything, pressure everything outside the perimeter and really get after teams. I think it's going to be a unique defensive challenge to go against them. And then with the Sixers, I think it's uh, simply a matter of, you know, size, um, you know, t- protecting the paint, owning the backboards. Uh, the combination of Horford and Embiid always having one of those guys to me is is really unique. I think that um, I would be trying to stagger their minutes as much as possible. And then when they u- play them together, that's really big. And you're controlling tempo, you know, with that group as well. And then I think, you know, underrated addition, but Josh Richardson, I, I think he replaces a lot of what Jimmy Butler can do on the defensive end. And then you've also got length and, and size with uh, Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. I just think that they're going to be able to overwhelm and just kind of like uh, stomp on a lot of teams, especially in the Eastern Conference. And they're going to be able to put up a pretty good uh, you know, defensive efficiency rating. Those are two that jumped to mind for me. Do you have others on your list? No, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, I was looking at Portland wasn't a great defensive team last year, they, but they were middle of the pack at 16th. And when we were talking about their roster, it's like just abundantly clear they're not going to do what they were doing defensively. Sacramento is at 18th. I think they probably are less good than they were defensively a year ago. So a lot of these teams, Utah, frankly, put a lot of shits in the middle toward offense. I think they, you know, if Rudy Gobert wins defensive player of the year for the third straight time, Utah's going to be great because if they're still a top five defensive team with that offense, then they're going to be really super. But it's interesting to me just how much the shuffling has also impacted the league defensively. I think it's a great point. You're right. We we don't talk about that uh, nearly as often uh, as we talk about on the offensive end, but uh, you know, that's where it starts to go back to coaching and, and who's got buy-in and, and who's able to connect the players because when you're throwing things together on defense, I think it can arguably be a bigger challenge uh, to develop the chemistry and the cohesion, especially early. Uh, and I think that's one thing I'll be looking for, uh, you know, especially in like the first month or two of the season is okay. Which one, which one of these coaches like, you know, definitely had his team's attention from the first day of training camp on. You know, I would expect a team like the Clippers would be able to gel pretty well and, and rally around Doc Rivers, especially because they're bringing back, you know, a bunch of their role players. But, um, you know, there could be some challenges for some coaches who are, like if you're Terry Stotts, I mean, incorporating Hassan Whiteside, like you'd rather do that in a contract year than not in a contract year. And it's a, probably a, a blessing for the Blazers that they've kind of played that drop style on pick and roll. So, uh, that that should be a pretty smooth transition uh, for a player like Hassan Whiteside. But still, I mean, that's going to be a lot of uh, hard work for a coaching staff, uh, you know, to take care of business there in, in early October and to get those guys ready. Uh, here's a final note for you. You will find interesting. Hopefully anybody who stuck with us for 30 minutes will find interesting. I did a research project over the last two seasons. And if you take the base level being the average offense and the average defense, and then you create individual game performances. So if you were 10% better than the league average offensively or 10% better than the league average defensively on a given night, except, you know, so great offensive night or great defensive night, what do you think the winning percentage difference is? Do you think it's more important to have a good offensive night or more important to have a good defensive night? Uh, I don't know. I would guess defense based on the way you set this up, but I I don't know. Exact same. Exact same. It is a perfect chart. Absolutely perfect chart on both sides. The impact of a good having is a good offense and a good defense is the exact same. Well, in the regular uh, season. you blew my mind. Yeah, 
So there we go. Little note for you. Ben Golliver, enjoy uh, that kind of number stuff in Vegas. Enjoy Team USA. Tell hi to, say hi to, you know, Donovan for me. Just, you know, mention him, me, and he'll look at you like, what are you talking about? No. Have fun, my man. Appreciate <laughs> it. Awesome. Thanks for the chat, man. Take care. That is Ben Golliver. That is Locked On NBA. Anthony and Adam will be with you tomorrow for the Friday edition. We have no offseason here on the Locked On Podcast Network because the true fan has no offseason as well. This is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.